Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell down to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible with you, for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Here in church this morning, appreciate uh, that great worship. What a great worship uh, time and session we've had this morning. Amen. I've been uplifted and encouraged. That was better than a Bon Jovi concert. Because um, we get to participate and worship the King of Kings. Hallelujah. Well, what a task I've got this morning. Uh, I'll try to be uh, brief, which, as you know, can be challenging for me. So let's pray and ask God to help me. Father, we're grateful that we can gather. Um, what an awesome portion of scripture that is before us today as a church, as we ponder, as we come into this time that we celebrate as Easter. We remember, Jesus, your suffering, your death, and your glorious resurrection. Father, today as we, I guess, set the pace and uh, we launch into this series, may we as a church, as your people, uh, be gripped afresh with the truth that is before us. May we leave today rejoicing and amazed by your love, your goodness towards us. I pray and ask this, and I ask that you'd help me to communicate and preach your word clearly and precisely. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, uh, we're starting this new series, this Easter series, uh, entitled One Way. And we're looking at the life of Jesus. Jesus shows us the one way to the Father, and he, he lived his life as an example of that one way for us. Now, it's interesting, we know that the Bible gives us four accounts of the life of Jesus, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the first four books of the New Testament. And it's interesting that all of the Gospels devote, in, in effect, roughly one-third of their writings to this final week of Jesus' life. It's interesting that only two Gospels mention Jesus' birth, the other two Gospels mention, all four mention his resurrection, though only for a small portion, but every single Gospel mentions, focuses in on these last couple of days of Jesus' life 
prior to his crucifixion. Now, if you don't know, I used to be a tradesman. And as a tradie, you would, uh, even it happens from time to time now, people offer you cashies, a cash job. They'll say it's just a weekender. Get, a, get some good money in a couple of days. Just do a cashy. Earn, you know, a certain amount of money. Work hard. Get some cash money. Before we ponder this text, I want you to think about the crucifixion, the Garden of Gethsemane here, the night before the crucifixion, and even Jesus' resurrection. We would ask the question, I would say to you, why did Jesus live for 33 years? Why was it that his ministry was for three years when in fact his greatest ministry and the focus of the attention of the scripture is really only this weekender. You can get a lot of, you can earn good money on a weekender for a cashy. God seemed to accomplish a lot with this cashy. So why have we got a devotion of 33 years of a man's life? Not much reference to it, except for this last week. Leave that thought just hanging there for a moment. And I would say this to us as a church as well. If you're here visiting, if, you're, if you've been coming to church for some time, often in church we can preach on life things, um, uh, the difficulties of life, of bitterness, struggle, gossip. You might hear sermons on being faithful, sermons on enduring and, and uh, suffering, being faithful. The topic that we're looking at during this Easter series is massive. So all of Christianity really hinges upon the text that we're going to be listening to. So I would ask that you would today pay special attention to what I'm preaching on today, not because I'm preaching it, but because of what it says and what it means for us as believers, as Christians. I'd ask you to do that. So what we have here is the night before Jesus is to die. He's just had the last supper with the disciples and now he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press, which this garden that he's gone gone into, it's a place that he would go many times with his disciples and it is, in effect, an olive grove. And this is a place where olives would grow, olives would then be crushed, they would be broken and ground up so that oil would be produced from them. Again, just for you Bible buffs, oil throughout Scripture is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And here is this lovely picture, poetic picture, if you like, that we see of Jesus going into the garden, this place of oil uh, being produced, a place of crushing, perhaps suggesting to us that before the, the oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, can be given, someone had to be crushed and broken. Don't want to give away too much just yet. Jesus' ministry, we know, began with a temptation in a wilderness, and now it ends with this great temptation in a garden. He goes there to pray, and this is an intense meeting with the Father, and notice there that he brings his disciples, except for one who has already gone off, ready to betray him. He takes the 11 disciples to that garden, but then he draws closer his mates, if you like, the three closest disciples or companions. It is uh, Peter, James, and John. 
and he brings them closer and it's right to the end there. He's wanting this companionship. He's wanting this friendship at this time in his life. Again, for you Bible buffs, we make another reference, don't we, to the earlier part in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, where we see Jesus with his disciples grab the same three dudes and it's Peter, James and John and it's now on the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, without giving too much away, just want to throw that hook out there this morning as well before we go into this text, is that on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is where Elijah and Moses appear to Jesus and they uh, encourage him about the cross that he's about to go to. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that Jesus changed, his face became radiant, glorious, Uh, I like the way Mark says it, he says that his clothes became uh, bleached so white that no washing powder, as it were, detergent could ever make it that white. That's pretty cool. This is the man of transfiguration. So we have the three there, now a few chapters later we have the three here. What are we seeing? Again, for Bible buffs, we're seeing the perfect picture there in Mark 9 of Jesus' divinity, that he was the God-man, God in the flesh. And now we're seeing him go into the Garden of Gethsemane where he is going to be a broken man. We're seeing Jesus separated with the three in his perfect humanity. Oh, and church, brothers and sisters, we ought to be so glad that he was fully man. Leave that hanging there for a minute as well. They saw him, this is the God-man in Mark 9 and now they see him in his full humanity, broken. Let's ponder that for a few moments. Because what happens here in the garden needs an explanation. Luke in his gospel calls it agony. Luke goes into detail And he speaks of Jesus' sweat turning into becoming drops of blood. Now, we're not surprised by Luke's detail to that account because Luke was a doctor. So he speaks in medical terms as he sees this. Matthew and Mark don't make mention of these, of of sweat turning into drops of blood. In John's account of the same passage, Peter, soon after this, warms himself by a fire. So it's a cold night, but whatever is happening to Jesus here, friends, is so intense that he is sweating drops of blood. Not just drops of blood, but again, Luke's account, it says great drops of blood. It is the picture of clots of blood pouring out from the pores of his skin into the ground. You have to ask the question, I don't know if you've ever seen that happen to somebody. Something incredibly intense is happening to Jesus here. What is this all about? You have to ask the question. We we grow up in church, we just read through the story, and he was there and he just went down and he fell on his face and we miss it, don't we? We miss the intensity and what's really happening here. Because to understand this agony is to understand the cross. To understand this agony is to understand why Jesus died and he gives us power for our living today. 
So what we need to do is understand this pain, this distress, and to get us thinking perhaps in a way that would help us understand it. I want to help us understand it by asking these two, these two questions. Number one, why the magnitude of his agony here and why the timing of it? If we answer those two questions today, you will see how our lives will be radically changed and will be different in a few moments. Amen? Let's go. So why the magnitude? Notice in verse 33 and 34, it says as he's going, he's left the supper, it says he began. Those words is speaking that something is taking place very suddenly. He's walking along and suddenly there's this sorrow. There's this inner pain. He is troubled and this sense of horror comes upon him. It says there, to the point of death. He feels like he is about to be killed or he's about to die on the spot. Now, how do we know that this is occurring? Who tells us about this text? Can I tell you, the narrative for these texts is only Jesus because he was the only one there. No one else could tell us of what this is or what's going on here but Jesus himself in his resurrected state and form speaking, sharing these truths to, to the disciples. And can I tell you, Jesus is not like fisherman who says, I caught a fish and it was this big. And the wife says, I cooked it, it was actually this big. Oh, that's what happens when you fry it, it shrinks. <laughs> can I tell you, Jesus is not given to exaggeration. When he says he was at this place and he felt like he was at the point of death, church, it was because that's exactly how it was. To sweat blood. This is a medical term, hema. I'll try. To hydrosis. It's a condition which the capillary vessels, blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture causing them to exclude, exclude blood under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. What is going on here in this suffering? Now, if you were to ask, as you see Jesus facing this death, this, this torture, the cross where he's about to go, he's trembling, he's not even at the cross yet, he is in agony, how does this compare in terms of his suffering here to that of his disciples, to that of his followers? Because many Christians, even today, suffer death for their faith, martyrdom for their faith, and how is it that they face death for their faith compared to Jesus? And the truth is, church, many Christians, followers of Christ, as they have faced uh, martyrdom for their faith, they have done it, it would appear, extremely well for the most part. There are many, many testimonies. I'll give you a couple. The second century, it was Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was taken into the arena and threatened uh, many, many times. This is your last chance to renounce Christ. You are going to be burned at the stake if you do not renounce him. And he said these words, how can I renounce him whom I have served all of these years? 
Another famous one in the 17th century was Bishops Ridley and Latimer. They were burnt at the stake in Oxford in 1555 and, and it was Latimer who turned to Ridley as the flames on green wood. The, the, the stories say that the disciples of these men placed gunpowder in necklaces and put it around their neck in order to uh, expedite the process of their martyrdom. And as they were burning, as blood began to... I'll, I'll stop there. As they were burning, it was Latimer who turned to his companion in Ridley and he said, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. Oh. Here are these men dying for their faith, dying for Christianity with what would appear to be courage and boldness and strength. And yet here we see Jesus. He's not even at the cross and he's falling on his face. That is not the Jewish posture for prayer. He has fallen on his face. Clots of blood are coming from his head and he is weeping. He is at the point of death. What is going on here? We have him saying three times, is there any way out of this? The question that I ask is this, why is it that so many of Jesus' followers face death without fear and yet we see Jesus here trembling and would appear that others face death a lot greater than what Jesus did? You know what the answer is? It is this. Nobody ever faced death like Jesus faced death. Jesus knew that when he was going to die, you know it didn't surprise him. He was constantly throughout the Gospels telling his disciples he was going to be crucified, that you will fall away when this happens. I'm going to the cross. I am going to give my life as a ransom for many. He was telling them. He's not surprised, but at this point he's overwhelmed when it is happening. You know why, church? It is this. It is because Jesus wasn't dying as a martyr. He was dying as your substitute. This is what we call in theology the penal substitutionary atonement. This is an important theological truth for, for every believer. And that's why when you have a cross without suffering, when you have a cross without the price of your sin and my sin, I tell you, church, you do not have a cross at all. Can I tell you, that's why all of our efforts to speak to our friends and our neighbours, come to Jesus, he'll make you happier. Come to Jesus, he'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus, you'll smile a little bit more. He'll deal with your depression. Can I tell you, those things are true. Don't get me wrong, those things are true. But that is a small portion of the truth of the gospel, the fullness, the wholeness of the gospel is that the wages of sin is death and God in his goodness paid the price for you and for me. And can I tell you, 
You can come to church and you can wander around and enjoy the music and do some cool things. But until that drops deep into your heart, you will never get the message of Christianity of Christ. You will walk in here, you'll say, I'll sing for six months, I've had some good friends, I can find that anywhere, I can find that in a footy club, I can find that doing UFC, I can find that in the cricket club, because that's not what it's all about. It is the fact that we are all sinners, deserving a devil's hell. God in his great love and grace paid the price for our forgiveness. I'll settle down now, that was enough of my ranting. We just did the Beatitudes, didn't we? Look at the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first step. What's the second Beatitude? Blessed are those that mourn. That's the second step. What's the third step? Blessed are the meek. That's the third step. What's the fourth step? Blessed are the pure. See, you've got to be, you've got to see yourself as poor. That should make you weep. That should then make you meek. And that then should make you hunger. If you've never had those four things in the greatest sermon that we just studied, then you will never, ever have the true gospel. You can have church, you can sit in this place, you can enjoy free cookie and coffee and tea, but you will never have the real thing. And I'm only saying this not to be cheeky or smart, but it is my desire today that every single one of us would have the real thing. Oh, guys, I've been... I'll save this story for another day. You're just sitting here going, mum and dad bring me along. It's dumb. You better get a hold of this. Oh, oh, might find a good wife here. I better come. They're all bad. They're all tramps out here. I might get a good Christian girl. <laughs> don't really understand it. I don't like lifting the hand stuff. That's, that's kind of weird. It's not about that. It's about this. John Stott, in his writings on the gospel, on the cross, he says this, the essence of sin is that we human beings have substituted ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is that God substituted himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And God put himself where we deserve to be. If that grips your heart, you'll be changed. What kind of shepherd dies that his sheep may live. What kind of priest offers himself as a sacrifice for his own lambs? What kind of king removes his crown so that his subjects may be crowned? Oh, my friend, 
That is a substitutionary atonement of what we're talking about this Easter. And when that grips your heart, you know what you're going to see? Oh, I'll I'll save it to the end. He talks about this cup, doesn't he? I move on as quick as I can. He talks about this cup. This cup, if you have a concordance to look in your Old Testament, you see again and again in the Old Testament, this cup, the cup speaks of God's wrath. It's often used of nations that would confront God's people, that they would be, in fact, then confronted with the cup of God's wrath. And here it is, Jesus' prayer three times, representing the wrath of God. He's saying, Lord, let this cup be removed. Sinclair Ferguson writes of this, he said, if he didn't shrink from this, it would be hard to believe the genuineness of his nature. Here it is. Jesus is saying, is there any other way but me taking this cup? At the cross, we see the punishment of God and it begins here in the garden. The perfect punishment, the righteous, the holy punishment of God upon sin. And Jesus is saying, is there any other way? Cranfield says it this way, if we have any discussions of the cross, leaving out Jesus bearing the wrath of God and having not considered the great weight of sin, you have made light of the cross indeed. And I think part of the problem is church is probably the way that we view the wrath of God. Sometimes I think we view the wrath of God as God just getting to that point and fed up and being angry. I don't know about you, I didn't have a dad for a lot of my life, but I did until the age of 11. Now I remember my, my mum was probably the main disciplinarian in my family. My dad wasn't. My dad would generally belt us with a hose or a cricket bat, only at the point when he got totally fed up. I remember one day we were playing a game of cricket and I threw the ball and he looked up and it hit him right on the head. And I, you know your dad was like, but I just got that feeling, now's a good time to run. Uh, I remember taking off down at our beach house down in Waratah Bay near Sandy Point. And as I ran, I, something, it wasn't the Holy Spirit, I certainly wasn't a Christian. Maybe it was, so I wouldn't die. It was like something in me said, look up. And I looked up in the air and I, t- I saw this swirling cricket bat about to descend upon me. And uh, luckily I then moved out of the way and dad's cricket bat never hit me. Sometimes we can think or view, perhaps, the wrath of God being the same way. That God just gets fed up and he has this fiery outburst. Can I tell you, the wrath of God isn't like that. It is the inevitable, settled reaction of his absolute holiness to the fact of sin. That we all deserve. Why 
have we got the timing of this reaction here? Why didn't the Father just allow him to face the cross and face the agony, the suffering there? Why is he at this point suffering? Why didn't he just give him one more good prayer session? A couple of years ago, I was participating in a youth, a juvenile uh, rehabilitation program at part of the police force. It's called ROPES. It's an acronym for something. I don't know what it is, but it, and, and, and we use a Christian camp down in the Morning Peninsula. They have a ropes course, and it's, it's quite challenging. And part of, part of the ropes course is you have these juveniles that, are, that have committed an offence, a crime that is serious, but this program, if they participate in the program, they'll, uh, they won't get a criminal record. So I volunteered and participated in the program, and one of them is a giant uh, rope swing. So the idea is that they're pushed to the limits, taken out of their comfort zone, it'll soften their hearts and you can, you know, say some good things to them. Well, everyone was looking at me and as, as, as the police officer participating with all of these juvenile troublemakers and they said, why don't you go on the rope swing? And this rope swing, it required teamwork. So about 20 people, in my case probably 30 people, would grab this rope and they would pull it and it would cause you to be hoisted or lifted about 20 metres, which felt like about 100 metres in the air. You would then pull another rope and then you, you would free fall like a, a mini bungee jump for about 10 metres and then you'd just swing until they decided the fun was over. Can I tell you, looking from the ground, looking up, I thought, you, yeah, I'll give it a go. So I was all in. I remember when I got harnessed in and they started pulling the rope, all the juveniles, three of them, I heard them say, drop it now, drop it now. It was their one chance to get back at me. As they're pulling the rope, I got about halfway up and I said to myself, I don't want to go through with this. That's high enough, you know, let's stop. But then I thought, I'm going to look like such a weakling to all these juvies. So I had to bend it and, and bear it. And I'm right at the top, and I remember I'm absolutely petrified. I felt like I was 100 metres off the ground, which it wasn't. I, I, I acknowledge that, okay? <laughs> but everything in me said, no, I'm not doing this. Uh, no, that, thanks, I've had enough fun. They've put me down. I'm, I, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm volunteering for this course. I don't have to be here, you know what I mean? I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't back out. You'll be glad to know. I pulled the rope and I swung freely and it was great fun. But I tell you, I was petrified up there. I say all of that to say this. Jesus facing, as it were, it interprets the cross for us. As he faced hell, as he looked over the, the, the prepotence of hell itself for us, he had a choice in the darkness when no one was watching, when no one was around, to run away. But he didn't. Hallelujah. He went through it for you and I. He voluntarily went through this. That's good news, church. Let's wrap it up. You say, why is that good? Because right here in the garden, doesn't Jesus fulfill the great commandments? What are they? Who can tell me what the two great commandments are? Let's go quickly. Love God. Love your neighbor. Amen? Isn't he doing that right here? He obeyed God like no one else before him. 
centuries earlier, God put Adam in the garden, showed him a tree, obey me and you will live. He now puts Jesus in another garden, the second Adam, he shows him a tree, the cross, and says, obey me about the tree and you will be crushed. Every other person, obey me and you will live. Jesus, obey me and you will be abandoned. And what does he do? He obeys. What great love for God. What about his love for us? Three times it says that Jesus goes back to the garden and what does he do? His neighbours, he finds them sleeping. He's desperate for companionship. He's desperate for mateship. Guys, I need you to stay awake. Watch and pray. And what do they do on three occasions? They fall asleep. Good on you, mate. I don't know about you, but I would have felt like saying, if I was in Jesus' shoes, why should I do this for them? And they're not even willing to stay awake for me. Perfect love for God. Perfect love for his neighbour. Seen right here. What an example he is. What difference does this make for us? Plenty. I won't take the time to say it, but I'll say this. Jesus here, in the darkness of the garden, behaved the same way when he was in the light. In other words, Jesus was a man of integrity. What an example to us of integrity. Jesus here is an example to us of prayer. He desperately wanted this, but ultimately submitted his will to whatever God wanted. Well, how many know that can happen to us? Prayer is not you praying for what you, what you want and always getting your way. Prayer is you wrestling through all of your stuff, finally aligning your heart to God's will and having confidence. God, you are wise, you are perfect. You are going to, I trust you in whatever the outcome. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is an example to us of prayer. Jesus here is an example to us of suffering. I don't know about you, I, I like to mention uh, the times when I've suffered when I shouldn't have, and I don't like to talk about the times when I've suffered when I, I probably deserved it. This happens when I interview people that we're charging with an offence. Sometimes we have 20 burglaries that have occurred in uh, close proximity. So I'll interview this offender about all 20. And it's funny, it's not what they do say, it's what they don't. When you mention a burglary, a home invasion that they didn't commit, you know, they'll sit there and go, and then when you mention one that they did do, they'll go, no comment. He probably didn't do that one, but clearly he did that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. Here is Jesus. We talk about our suffering. He is the one perfect man that never sinned, that never did any wrong, yet he suffered like this for all of us. Can we take in our life until we get to be with him forever? 
our little cup of suffering because he took the massive cup of suffering. What an example to us. He's also an example for us as it relates to forgiveness. Have you got anyone in your life right now who's dropped the ball on you? Hey, mate, can you just do this for me? Yeah, mate, I'll, 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 I'll be here. Come back in an hour. Hasn't been done. You just want to slap them on the outside of the head, don't you? Have you got somebody in your life that is not being faithful, that is that are not keeping their word, that they are not doing what they said and you just feel like blasting them or just saying, don't even bother, I don't even want to do this anymore. Well, look at Jesus. He looks at them who are like that and he says, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Understands the the weakness, the, the fleshly propensity. What an example to us to be gracious with people in our lives that aren't meeting the mark. Amen? You see this? But can I tell you, more than these examples, you know what we all need? We need a heart miracle, and that is this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I close. God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah. 33 years, job done on a weekend, a weekender. Why did he live for 33? 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin become sin for us. Church, when God looks at you today, when he looks at me as Christians, you know who he sees? The perfect righteousness of of Jesus Christ. He lived 33 years sinless. I've lived 43 years sinful. And through every single sin through my teenage years, he was perfect. When I did a mess in the cot and stole my brother's biscuits, He was perfect. When I was a young man and I sinned, he was perfect. When I was an adult and I sinned, he was perfect. 33 years of perfection for my 43 years of sinfulness. He paid the price for you and for me. Hallelujah. When God looks at you today, he sees beauty. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can that get into your soul today? Because can I tell you, we all desperately want to feel good about ourselves. We want, we, if we can't feel good about ourselves, we want to marry somebody that looks good to make us feel good about ourselves. Look what I've got. <laughs> we so desperately want to feel good. Get new clothes, you're feeling down. Get myself a new jacket, man. Hey! New car, new house. Always, all of us looking for something, a career. My my career, I may. In fact, I'll give you a business card. I never asked for one, but I'll give it to you anyway. Looking to feel good. Oh, church. We come back to this. How good can we feel 
Because the only one whose glaze view matters loves us this much. He loves us this much. We should just feel so good about ourselves, not because of ourselves, but because of this great sacrifice and death and love for you. He did that for you. I don't think God loves me. If he went through hell and all of this for you, don't you know he's going to love you in your difficulties and your mess-ups from day to day? Hallelujah. What does this do? This gives you a capacity to forgive others because you see how much he has forgiven you. There's no married love, child love or career that will ever give you what God can give you from here when you see Jesus dying in the dark. I pray that it melts your heart, causes you to fall on your face and rejoice and get up saying, I'm so loved by God himself. Amen. Amen. Let's just bow our heads and pray this morning. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for dying for us in our place. May we be gripped afresh today by this truth. Jesus, not just a martyr, but you substituted yourself. I pray, Father, for those that are here that don't know you. May they see this is not just a gathering like any other club or sporting group. Yeah, this is the answer to the longings of their heart. That sin brings brokenness. But you, Jesus, have paid the price for our sin and you've restored relationship. I pray for every child of God that is struggling, that is facing deep darkness of soul. May they be freshly overwhelmed with this great passage and have confidence in prayer, confidence in trial, confidence in their ability to forgive, to let go of bitterness for those that have hurt them. Oh Lord, open the truth of this passage to our hearts. Pray and I ask it in Jesus' name.